1: And I'm Courtney Eck. And we are your hosts, and we are still sisters. hmm And we are here to talk to you today about some murder. More murder! Max murder. Ultimate bodacious murder. <laughs> <laughs> not bodacious it's it's pretty bodacious it did
0: take it did take place in the 80s so okay Okay. if there is a murder to label bodacious this would be it there you go i know that courtney's
1: really excited about this case i know a little bit about it but not a lot i'm super excited to dive in and hear all about it though because if courtney's excited y'all should get excited
0: well the jury's still out on that but i appreciate your confidence in me (laughs) 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 <laughs> I got it I got enough for both of us. So That's right. <laughs> you no, know, I'm very excited about this story. So just a really quick backstory on this case. I have a friend whose name is Jordan Firstman. He's a brilliant comedy writer. He writes for Search Party on TBS and the other two, which is a goddamn hilarious show on Comedy Central. I met Jordan several years ago when he was just a budding baby genius, wasn't a full-blown comedy genius. Uh, As we were getting to know each other, I asked him what his parents did, and he mentioned that his father was a true crime writer. And I was like, is he any good? Thinking, like, maybe he's some sort of self-published, you know, loser. (laughs) He's like, yeah, actually, he's published a few books. He's kind of amazing. And then I quickly forgot about the conversation until recently, when I was like, I want to do a crime like an Anne Rule level, you know, like 80s, 90s, big, bodacious, like you mentioned before, true crime story. And I remember that his father, my Jordan's father, had written this novel. And so I looked him up. His name is Richard Firstman. And this book is called A Criminal Injustice, A True Crime, A False Confession, and the Fight to Free Marty Tancliffe. Ooh. And he wrote this book along with J. Saul Peter, who's a private detective who comes up a lot in the latter half of the story. So I looked into the case a little bit more and I'm so fucking good. This is like the perfect true crime case. So I'm so excited to share it. I'm so excited that my friend's father wrote it. And with all that said, this is the story of the murders of Seymour and Arlene Tankliff. So on the morning of September 7th, 1988, Marty Tencliffe woke up at 6.05 a.m. for his first day of high school in Terre, Long Island. He immediately sensed that something wasn't right, as many of the lights were still on in the house from the night before. He made his way through the house, noting that the front door was open and into the office where he found his father, Stuart, sitting in a chair, beaten, and his neck slashed nearly all the way around, ble- yeah bleeding profusely but still alive. Marty immediately called 911 and began to administer first aid on his father. He was still alive? Yes, like oh nearly God. decapitated but still oh still alive. No. Once he had his father on the ground with his legs elevated with a pillow from his own bedroom, Marty's bedroom, and a towel around his neck that he retrieved from the linen closet, he went looking for his mother, Arlene, and had remembers having a brief thought that maybe she'd gone out for some milk. Oh wow. I know. He found her in her bedroom, behind the bed, and completely still. He said he couldn't bear to go any closer, knowing, you know, sensing that she was probably dead. Right. He ran out screaming, called his sister, and left a message on her machine that he'd found his parents murdered. He then checked on his father, who was, quote, still gagging. Oh, my God. Called his best friend, Mark, and asked him to come over, and then ran next door to a neighbor's house. Quote, I didn't know what else to do. I just wanted someone to help me. When the police arrived, he showed them where his parents were and explained that he'd moved his father from the chair and placed the towel on his neck. He also immediately told the police, quote, I know who did this. It was Jerry Stuerman. Jerry was Stewart's business partner at a bagel shop they owned. EMTs arrived, began to work on his father, and quickly ascertained that his mother was dead, having been badly beaten and her throat cut as well. Mm. Marty's brother-in-law arrived to give Marty support, but before they were able to speak, police separated them, quote, so that they don't contaminate each other's accounts. And they put Marty in the back of a patrol car to wait for detectives while they rushed his father to the hospital. Marty asked police if he could go inside and wash his father's blood off of his hands. And they said, no. He spots a puddle in front of the patrol car and they agree that he can rinse his hands off in that. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. And he, you said he was getting ready
0: to start high school. Is It was, he was 17 years old. It was going to be the, his first day of his senior year of high school. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Detective Marty McCready showed up to survey the crime scene where he noticed blood in Marty's bedroom, along with blood in the office where his father was found and their bedroom where his mother was found. He then questioned Marty, who immediately repeats what he'd said to police earlier, that Jerry Stuerman was the one who'd attacked his parents. Seymour had held a poker game the night before that had gone into the wee hours of the morning, and Jerry had been the last one to leave. Marty relayed that Jerry and Seymour had been fighting all summer, and a worker at the store, at the bagel store, could back them up. Detective McCready walked Marty through initial questioning and notes that Marty had a spot of blood on his right calf, another on his instep, and then asks about the blood on his hands. Marty confirmed that he got the blood on himself while helping his father that morning. The sergeant also came over to question Marty, and Marty again explained that his father had been fighting with Jerry all summer and that Jerry owed his father a lot of money. He encouraged the detectives to speak with his uncle Mike, who is his father's attorney. At that exact moment... Uncle Mike, or Mike Fox, which was his full name, was walking up to the scene. McCready walked quickly towards Mike, spoke to him from a distance away, and Mike immediately turned back, got in his car, and drove away. Mike later reported that he'd asked for Marty and was told that he was already on his way to the hospital, although while he was actually in the back of the police car. Mm. When Marty asked where his Uncle Mike was going, McCready said he's going back to his office. If we need to contact him, we know where to reach him. Mm -hmm. This brief interaction would be argued extensively over the next few months as the investigation unfolded. Mm -mm. By the end of the day...
1: This isn't starting well.
0: (laughs) Oh, it just gets better and better. (laughs) All right, I'll buckle in. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, legitimately. And I I will say, too, this is a 600-page book. It's incredibly detailed, incredibly well-written, and I left a lot Mm -hmm. of detail out because... There's just absolutely no way that you could follow this case in that great a detail listening to a podcast. You all would just turn it off after twenty minutes because you'd be so confused. But I highly recommend reading Richard Firstman's book. It's so unbelievably well written and it's so good and so interesting. This is definitely this is by far the most fun I've had researching a case because I just couldn't wait to hear more about what happened. So Mm By the end of the day, detectives on the scene had concluded that the murder of Arlene uh, and the attack on Seymour were not the result of a burglary gone wrong, and the case that they were beginning to build will set Marty's life down a horrible path that no 17-year-old could ever imagine. McCready told Sergeant Doyle that he was immediately suspicious of Marty. Quote, he didn't like the kid's demeanor, too matter-of-fact, no tears, and a few things didn't look right. The police constable said he saw him washing his hands in a puddle in the street. There was a smear of blood around the light switch in his room, and there was this. The kid said that after he'd helped his father, he checked the garage for his mother's car. If he's telling the truth, there should be some blood on the handle of the door to the garage. They also discussed the fact that he was the only person in the house still alive and seemed to be a little too eager to pin the crime on Jerry Stewerman. They also brought in Detective Rain. Who was very reliable and had 29 years of experience on the force. Quote In the interview room, they, meaning McCready and Rain, were a classic good cop, bad cop combination. After questioning Marty for the third time that morning, they asked if he'd join them back at the station. Marty asked if they could stop at the hospital on the way, and McCready said that that could wait until after.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When they arrived at the station, Marty looked down and realized that he was still barefoot.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, his family members were searching frantically for him, oh, confused no. as to why he wasn't at the hospital when the detectives said he was. Yeah. So the kid wakes I, up. His parents are dead. Yeah. i uh, really surprised that they immediately were like, okay, we got our guy. Well, we'll get into this a lot more, but these detectives aren't the most honest detectives on the mm. planet. Mm. Yeah, and I was
1: getting that <laughs> feeling pretty quick there.
0: I mean, who the fuck would ever do that? Like, who would show up and just be like, we got our guy, this 17 yeah. year old kid, nailed it, you know? Yeah. That's Except crazy. for these two. Yeah.
1: He's guilty because he washed his hands in the puddles that they made him do. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And his
0: father's in critical condition in the hospital, and they're like, mm-hmm. you got to come with us, kid. I cannot believe that. No. Family members gathered at the hospital to monitor Seymour's progress and detectives showed up to begin questioning. Seymour's son-in-law explained that things weren't good between Seymour and his business partner, Jerry, and that Jerry owed him a lot of money. He said that an installment of $100,000 was due to be paid that week.
2: Mm.
0: Mike Fox also interjected that he had paperwork in his office that backed up all of the information. The family asked where Marty was and were told that he'd gone to the station to brief detectives on Seymour's business dealings, Mm -hmm. specifically with Jerry, and that he'd be driven to the hospital when they were done. Can, I mean, I know police can just kind of lie a lot.
1: (laughs) Can they lie to family members about minors? Um, According to
0: this case, they can literally lie about every single thing. Yes. Yes.
1: I'm just so I'm always surprised when there aren't more protections. I mean, I guess it's sort of like the Jeff Hall right? Joseph? Yes. There was some of that with him as well. Where Absolutely. There was just like no lawyer or family present. Yep. But yeah, it's just shocking to me that you can practically kidnap someone. A child. Not, yeah, not give yeah. them any representation and just lie to their family about why you have them in custody.
0: Well, in this case it is especially confounding because Everybody's operating on this plane of, like, what occurs in reality, Mm -hmm. not knowing, having the slightest idea that the cops are just setting them up for, like, the craziest betrayal. Wow. So Mike Fox and the other family members agreed that someone should be at the station with him. But just as someone was about to leave to go find him, there was a big commotion as Seymour was being transported to a new hospital Mm -hmm. and everyone agreed that they should go to in case difficult decisions needed to be made or legal paperwork needed to be signed. So it was like Sherry, uh, Marty's sister, Mike Fox, who was his lawyer, his son-in-law, some other family members, but all of them were like, it's, it's going to be fine. We need to, tend to see more right now like of course Marty's fine he should be here but he's with the detectives and they're just asking him some simple questions to clarify the situation with Jerry is the you know is the impression that they're all under so
1: which would be the right impression if you aren't like
0: assholes (laughs) exactly right yes the cops right exactly Yeah. so detectives began questioning Marty asking him about the hemorrhages in his eyes which were from a nose job he'd gotten recently oh I know. They asked him about school and girls and then finally launched into more questions about that night instead of about his father's business dealings, which was the pretense one, you know, under which they'd brought him down to the station. station. Mm-hmm. They'd asked him very specific questions about his family's habits, including who used which towel. Eventually Marty broke away from the questioning to lament that he was adopted by his parents when he was two and he didn't know what was going to happen now that he was an orphan. Mm. Rain reminded him that his father was still alive, so he wasn't an orphan yet. So finally, they began to question Marty about his father's poker games, where people would win or lose thousands of dollars in his father's business affairs. They also questioned him extensively about his parents' wealth and the fact that he'd be the main beneficiary if his parents ever died.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They questioned why he wasn't more upset about his parents' death, why he didn't have more blood on him if he'd helped his father, and why there wasn't any blood on the light switches in any of the rooms that he'd visited while trying to help his parents. They asked why he hadn't seen his mother the first time he'd gone into the bedroom, and why he hadn't helped her once he found her. They claimed they found his hair in his mother's hand, and that they'd done a humidity test in the bathroom, proving that he was lying about not taking a shower that morning. They said that he killed his parents and then took a shower to wash the blood Mm -hmm. off, and he was like, no, I woke up and immediately right. you know, launched into helping my parents after questioning Marty for a few hours at twelve fifteen PM McCready left the interview room and left the door open a phone rang and he answered it saying quote homicide McCready yeah John it's Jimmy yeah no kidding he came out of it okay that's great thanks a million he then returned to the interview room and said quote that was the detective I talked to earlier at the hospital they pumped your father full of adrenaline, and he's out of his coma, and he's conscious. And he's And he said that you did this. No. Yeah. No. Marty couldn't believe his ears. McCready claimed that they'd taped his father's full account, and they could play it for him later. Marty continued to deny his involvement, saying that maybe his father was confused because he'd seen him before the attack. He'd said he'd take a lie detector test and the police refused to give him one. Eventually he asked, quote, could I have blacked out and done it? Oh God. Meanwhile, Mike Fox was on his way to the office to collect the papers on Jerry Steuerman when he heard on the radio that Marty was being questioned in relation to his parents' attack. He immediately called the station to have it put on record that they were to cease questioning and have Marty transported to the hospital where his family was. This call was made at 1 PM at three o'clock. Mike Fox called back inquiring why Marty hadn't been delivered to the hospital. Like detectives had confirmed they would. He was informed at that time that Marty Tancleff was under arrest for murder. Mm. So he mm. no, <laughs> I know. So he basically called, you know, 30 minutes too late. Wow. Basically Marty was confessing just minutes before. Call. Mike Fox called and said, stop questioning him. If he had called just a few minutes earlier, they never would have gotten the confession. So a little bit about the family. Seymour Tancliffe was the epitome of a Wheeler dealer, get rich quick kind of businessman. And he had his hand in endless dealings quote, describing Seymour Tancliffe as a businessman is a little like calling a shark, a tropical fish. <laughs> he made his first million in insurance then sold the business and fashioned his voracious appetite for wheeling and dealing into a second career as everybody's partner, friend, (laughs) relative neighbor, perfect stranger. Seymour wanted to be in business with you.
1: So he was sort of like the eighties version of shark tank. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah.
0: Except not very good at it. Like kind of, kind of amazing at it. They had a lot, a lot of money, but didn't always make the most sound business decisions as you'll find out. Quote, Seymour was a dynamo, Ruth Tancliffe once said he was tall and gorgeous and everybody loved him. Seymour could sell you the moon. Mm-hmm. Seymour and Arlene met when Arlene got a job as a secretary and Seymour was her boss. Mm-hmm. Both were unhappily married at the time. Seymour was 10 years older and Arlene loved his grand lifestyle as she was a city girl through and through. Seymour had a much older daughter from his first marriage and the two decided to try to adopt another child. After having a devastating experience with starting the process to adopt a little girl only to have the mother change her mind, Mm -hmm. Seymour engaged in the very quiet and under the table process of adopting young Marty. Mm. Marty looked up to his father and couldn't have fit better into his father's life, absorbing his ways and following in his father's footsteps Mm -hmm. as a successful young entrepreneur. Quote, in elementary school, he would buy candy from liquidation stores and then sell it from a briefcase at school at a nice markup. (laughs) he did so well that the principal told him he had to stop because he was putting the school store out of business (laughs) so marty was always showered with love attention and things Mm. seymour once told his sister-in-law quote i love sherry she's my daughter and i really love her but i'm mad about marty wow yeah Marty even got a souped-up pink pickup truck with pink panther emblazoned across the hood. Oh man! They talk about how he was at the, you know, he's at a store and it was out front with a sign on it, and he was like, "Ah, oh, Dad, I love that truck. I really want it." And his dad's like, "You know, absolutely not." And then Marty walked outside and he was like, "All right, how much for the truck? Don't tell my kid." <sighs> oh God! I know. My heart's exploding. I love these people. I basically yeah. love everybody in this story except for the bad people, which are, there are many.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. Eight.
0: I love all the good people very much, <laughs> the bad yes. people are the worst possible people. Right. Marty cooked alongside his mother and quote, she was bringing me up to have good morals and manners, how to treat a lady the right way, how to cook, how to clean. As early as I can remember, I could cook for myself, clean for myself, do my own laundry. Marty was a very kind and generous kid, but was also described as spoiled and had an ego that put people off a bit. The family did have a few issues, Namely, Arlene's issues with Seymour's gambling and the fact that he rarely included her in his business deals. She also never got along with his daughter, Sherry. And after kicking Seymour out of the house for some time, negotiated essentially cutting Sherry out of his will. Oh, no. With the exception of the interest accrued on a trust that they'd set up for Hofstra University. Hmm. Which was also very strange because they didn't have any connection to Hofstra University. He just made Seymour feel cool to set up a trust for them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Sherry was not aware of this fact at the time of her parents' attack. She didn't know that she'd been cut out of the will. uh, So Mike Fox immediately went to work to find Marty a good criminal attorney and landed on Bob Gottlieb based on a colleague's recommendation. Gottlieb immediately contacted Marty and directed him not to speak to anyone until he arrived, including his sister. An hour later, police told Marty that they'd located his sister and asked if he'd like to speak to her, and he did. Quote, Rain, the detective, looked at him squarely, Marty later recalled, and told him like an angry parent, You're going to tell your sister what you did, and you're going to tell her that you're really, really sorry. The police asked if they could tape the conversation and Sherry said no. The police complied with her denial, which is essentially like the only time that they ever complied with anything, like did anything legal in this case. The conversation went as followed. Quote, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Marty said by both his and Sherry's account. I'm in big trouble. I need psychiatric help. I need you to be with me wherever they take me. Marty, I will be with you. Wherever they take you, I'll be with you. Marty, did you tell them you did this? Yes, Marty said, because they made me. Oh, buddy. The police later said that he acknowledged the attack when speaking to his sister, but they left out the part about them coercing him to do so. Mm
1: -hmm. Like they do.
0: Like they do. Gottlieb arrived a while later and remembers thinking Marty looked like a little baby in his white paper jumpsuit and that it was impossible to imagine the slight teen attacking anyone. Arlene's sister later said, quote, Arlene would have picked him up and thrown him through the window. <laughs> her husband, Ron, later added, quote, Everything about Arlene was tough. Her personality, her size, her strength, it was who she was. Whoever did this would have looked like he went through a war. Wow. Arlene had clearly put up a fight before she died, and there wasn't a single scratch or bruise on Marty. Yeah. So Mike, I want to
1: see a picture of her now, like right now. I know, I know.
0: <laughs> she sounds like such a badass. Such a badass. So, Mike walked Marty through the police interrogation, and in the end, he asked why he confessed when he hadn't done it. Quote, They had me believing that's what happened. This is a direct quote verbatim from the book. It was only after his release from the crushing pressure of the interrogation room, a force he was to compare to having an 18 wheeler bearing down on his chest that he began to recover his bearings enough to reclaim his own reality.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, but can you really imagine, if, like, waking up, finding your parents either dead or very close to no. dead, then getting, like, scooped up, put into an, an interrogation room. You don't have shoes on. Yeah, sure he didn't have food. He's in complete shock. He clearly. didn't eat for 20 hours. I love that detail. Out, but he didn't eat for 20 hours, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Don't, like, I don't have coffee. And if a policeman was like, hey tell me that you killed somebody. and I'll give you some coffee. Oh God. I
0: would actually kill somebody. They'd be like, kill this guy. You can have your coffee. (laughs) No problem. Yeah, no, I, it's like poor kid. And uh, you know, it's it's incomprehensible. It really is. And then, you know, add to the fact, like I said before, like you're working under the assumption that police are going to do the right thing, that they just want to ask you a few questions. And then they're going to take you to the hospital where your dad, your dad is dying in critical condition. And there would be no reason for
1: them to make up a story that the your dad is telling you no! that you killed. You know that, yeah,
0: yeah. And so reconciling mm-hmm. with all these multiple realities at once, and you are seventeen years old, and yeah, you, you feel absolutely crazy. Absolutely, like, did crazy. I did I do this? I might have. I don't. I don't. You know, absolutely, yeah. And you are also yeah. you know too young to know how like mental illness or your brain works, and like maybe I am having a psychotic break. I don't know. I've heard about it on all these eighties shows, or you know, like mm-hmm. you just don't know. Right. So, uh, again, read this book if you're interested. But he goes into a multitude of cases that these specific detectives handled in not-so-legal ways. Like, so far beyond immoral, straight until illegal. Long Island? They're in Long Island, in Suffolk County. Yep. So, one case they talk about is how they secured a confession after tying a piece of paper to a man's penis and putting it into a paper shredder. I'm
1: sorry. Yes. That's how they got him to confess. Yeah.
0: To murder. Do you think that was coerced? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) So their their rate for oral confessions was 94% compared oh. yeah man, compared oh to God. the averages of 55 to 73% in other large wow. suburban counties and other states. And this was 1988. Yes. Way before anybody knew anything about chorus confessions. That was not something, you know, that had come to the forefront yet or there anybody about, like not allowing police
1: to put penis Type... in their shredders
0: It was fully legal back then. No, that was <laughs> even in the eighties, you weren't allowed to tie a paper to a man's penis and put it in a paper shredder to get him to confess to a murder. You could no. do just about anything else but that Ugh, God. So Gottlieb knew that he was in and for an uphill battle with the false confession on the side of the officers and was actually working on another case where the same officers had gotten a confession after McCready claimed that quote scientific evidence had proven that the suspect had shot the gun that had killed his wife. And it hadn't. Right. They had one thing in their favor. Marty hadn't signed a confession, but something that would work against them in a major way was that the police hadn't been videotaping the interview. So it was their word against Marty's, but then you go to trial and they was not convicted and everybody lived happily ever after. (laughs) Thank God. Yep. The police changed their tune. The end. Nope. We're just getting started. Oh Mm -hmm. shit. And I forgot to mention this is a two part episode. I mean, you'll see that if you look at the title of it, but this is a two part episode. I tried to condense it down and then I got 17 pages in and I still had like a third of the story left to tell and was like, all right, I need to not rush this. So my apologies people, this is a two parter. So you're going to have to listen to the next part, but we'll get it up by Saturday. So you don't have to wait too long. So the next morning, Marty went before a judge where prosecutor Ed Jablonski read the charges against him. Quote, the defendant planned these attacks so carefully that he purposely was naked so he wouldn't get any blood on his clothing. Then he washed the murder weapons and put them in plain sight to throw the police off. He left the knife he used on the kitchen table next to a watermelon. The other weapon was a barbell. It was found in the defendant's bedroom.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He claimed Marty was angry because they were making him drive a 78 Lincoln, which Marty actually loved and was like restoring and doing all these things to it. Cause he thought it was cool and that they were leaving him behind when they went on a cruise and that his father had gotten mad at him for not setting up the card table for the poker game. And it escalated to violence. Oh my God. Quote, Marty Tankleff accused, but not convicted instantly took his place in the pantheon of atrocious behavior. Meaning the Long Island serial killer, the Amityville murders, like all the horrible things that had happened on Long Island previously. He was the quintessential spoiled Jewish North shore kid, a stereotype taken to psychotic extreme in the months to come. Prosecutors ably assisted by the media would burnish the image, turning the story of Marty's murderous fit into a kind of perverse suburban folktale. That's some goddamn good writing right there. Don't you agree? Yeah. Mm Yeah. Oh, poor Marty. Poor Marty. So the judge agreed that Marty would be held without bail and denied his request to attend his mother's funeral. No. Which was a, quote, violation of his fundamental right to the presumption of innocence. Right. Luckily, a different judge did allow him to attend the funeral in full handcuffs and shackles. Oh, no. At the funeral, he sat flanked by guards by himself and sobbed. Oh, buddy. Fucking awful. That's awful.
1: And real quick. Yep. His dad is still alive? His dad is barely alive, but he hasn't. But still
0: st- alive. Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. I know. So Jerry Stewartman, Stuart Tancliff's business partner, was mm-hmm. by all accounts a swindler and a crook. He would toe to toe with a very powerful New York bagel union and openly disobeyed them even after relenting and joining the union. I mean you bagel can read on and, and all about there's a bagel union. It's very powerful and but there's still a bagel union? I cannot confirm that there is currently a bagel union, but I would <laughs> be very surprised if there wasn't. And
1: I I really love that there's a bagel union well
0: and read the book because it really (laughs) goes into great detail about how this guy tried to open this bagel shop without joining the bagel union and they were like hell to the fuck no (laughs) (laughs) he finally relented but then he just kept doing things even though they said not to anyway yeah he also handcuffed himself to the merrill lynch building twice in manhattan with a brief trip downtown to the police station after being arrested for trespassing after a miscommunication with a broker until they agreed to his demands. Wow. Yeah. He was basically like, you know, not to go into all the details, but there had been a miscommunication with an investment and he lost some money and they were like tough shit. And so he handcuffed himself to the building twice <laughs> until they were like, fine, you can have the thing. Huh. i have to remember that. next uh, time. Yeah. I don't get <laughs> works my, like, every time. Gas points. Yeah. I think you could just talk to a manager and they oh, probably, right, okay. <laughs> it's not 1980s Manhattan. Damn it. He leased a $1,700 Maserati that he couldn't begin to afford and lived well beyond his means. He considered himself a ladies man and was known for hitting on the teenage employees at the bagel shop. Uh, yuck! Yeah, Yeah. Major yuck. One day while working in the shop, Jerry was shot in the chest through the store's front window and they never figured out who did it. <laughs> He was shot? Shot. He lived. Yep. Wow. Quote, Jerry Steuerman was the kind of guy who always seemed to have somebody mad at him. Eventually he found some success with his bagel business in Suffolk County, which is how he met Seymour Tankliff. Quote, Seymour and Jerry seemed cut from the same cloth. Like Seymour, Jerry was noisy, brazen, impetuous, overconfident. Like Jerry, Seymour was hyperconscious of money and covetous of status. They both badly wanted people to see them as they saw themselves as big shots. Mm. Jerry decided he wanted to move to the more prestigious Beltaire where Seymour lived and purchased a piece of property to build his mansion. When construction costs began to exceed his budget, he turned to his multimillionaire friend who was notorious for giving out loans at 30 or 40% interest with a, quote, hammer clause, which meant Mm -hmm. he could call the loan due at any point if the borrower fell out of good standing. Mm. So as you can imagine, a 30 or 40% interest loan (laughs) (laughs) is not illegal. That's not legal, um, Mm -hmm. first of all. But Seymour didn't like to pay taxes, and so that's how he hid his money. That was one of the ways he hid his money. And then Mike Fox, his lawyer, was always like, dude, Seymour, how the fuck is somebody going to pay? Like, If you put down the hammer, if somebody's falling behind on their loan and then you call it all due at once, like, what is the Mm -hmm. logic in that? You know, you're basically setting everybody up in the situation for failure. These people aren't going to be able to pay them back, and you're going to be out this money because they're not going to be able to pay it back. Right. No. Yeah. Crazy. It's crazy. This was before the housing crash of 2008, where we all learned a lot of (laughs) lessons about predatory lending. So Jerry was also dealing with his wife's chronic pulmonary condition. Uh, He had a lull in his bagel business. His own gambling and his drug dealing son, Todd, were also issues. Todd had recently been nabbed selling drugs to an undercover cop, and Jerry hired a very expensive lawyer to represent his son. This lawyer, just side note, happened to be the defense lawyer for Ronnie DeFeo, who killed his entire family and inspired the Amityville franchise. Wow. It's, it's all connected. It's, I know. It's <laughs> like So Seymour agreed to loan Jerry $200,000. Seymour held the bagel business as collateral, and for the first few months, Jerry made his payments on time. 11 months after loaning Jerry the first amount, he requested an additional $150,000, and Seymour agreed to the loan in exchange for half of his bagel shop in East Setauket. I think is how you say it. So his bagel shop in East Setauket. Please forgive me, residents of East Setauket, if that's not how you say it. They also decided to open a new store together with a $179,000 build-out cost all of which Seymour funded. Nine months later, they sold that store together for $200,000, but under the terms of the deal, Jerry still somehow owed Seymour $50,000 on that store. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> At this point, Jerry owed Seymour $2,500 a week and $11,000 per month in interest. Holy shit. it's so not a good loan. No, don't sign that a contract. Fuck no. He admitted to a friend that he was only able to pay back the loan because of his winnings at Seymour's weekly poker tournaments. Oh my god. <laughs> These guys. I know, I know. I know. And I'm not kidding. Like, again, please read the book. It goes yeah. on and on and on and on and
1: on on both ends, both wow. sides. But yeah, no, it's totally Marty because he was mad about the cruise.
0: I mean, cl- yeah, clearly it's like, yeah. I want a better car. I'm going to wake up and murder my parents today. <sighs> yeah. On April 13th, 1987, Jerry took out another loan with a legitimate bank for $110,000 to cover the final payments on the house he'd built, and they put it in his wife's name only. Two months later, his wife died, and a few months after that, he moved out of the house that he'd built and took a $300,000 loss on the sale. Man. Yeah. He also owed three casinos $9,000 each, $4,000 to his carpet installer, and he owed the Suffolk County Department of Finance and Taxation $141,863. Wow. So this guy had no reason. I mean, he's a chill dude. Just completely yeah. relaxed. No reason no to deal. feel stressed. Wow. Puts it, things in perspective, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I've been a little lax on my credit card payments since the virus hit. I'm like, oh, God, my credit. I'm like, no, that's fine. <laughs> you're no You're no Jerry. Yeah. It's no surprise that Jerry began to fall behind on payments and Seymour was understanding for a while and even gave him some room to try to get back on his feet. Eventually, though, he learned that Jerry had invested $30,000 in a quarter horse without telling him. What? Yeah. They actually had a quarter horse business together. Wow. Yeah. It's like a hobby business. Right. But yeah, Jerry had gone behind his back and invested $30,000 in a quarter horse. And it also started the process of opening a new bagel store for his son to run. And Seymour and Arlene suspected that it was a front for the drug operation. His son, Todd, continued to run despite his previous arrest.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah. So the hotshot Amityville lawyer was really good and got Todd off completely. And so Todd, rather than be contrite and learn from his mistakes, just ramped up his drug dealing operation. got a bagel. Front. yeah and then his dad was like you know what would really help you make a ton of cocaine Oy. money wow yep it was the 80s yeah, yeah boys will be boys it's the 80s they're gonna sell some cocaine at your dad's bagel shop <laughs> <laughs> seymour began to call the debts due starting with the fifty thousand dollar note on the bagel shop that they'd sold over the summer their fighting escalated their paranoia grew, and to make matters worse, Arlene claimed that Jerry had made a pass at her while his wife was dying. Hmm. Quote, why would I go out with an Avis when I'm married to a Hertz, was her response. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fucking, I, to,
1: I wish I could go to 80s cocktail party. With oh, her my right God.
0: Mm-hmm. Long Island cocktail party, no uh, less. God,
1: I know. I'm just closing my eyes, picturing myself there. Fuck, I start yeah. to feel anxious later. That's where I'm going. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I've found my happy place. Yes.
0: Yeah, Seymour and Arlene Tankliff's mm-hmm. mansion Thanks, in Belter. <laughs> Everyone who knew the couple claimed that Arlene was actually the one putting the most pressure on Seymour to put the hammer down on Jerry. Seymour also had other high interest loans that were teetering on default and was realizing that maybe his endless risky business dealings weren't the most shrewd investments. Mm-hmm. Quote, Seymour and Jerry, it seemed, were hurtling toward each other from opposite ends of the track. Both men were beginning to panic. When Seymour began to express that he was afraid of what Jerry was capable of, friends encouraged him to make a report with the district attorney so that it would be on record. He did not take his friend's advice. Uh, damn it. I know. On Friday, August 26th, Seymour told Mike Fox that he was going to call all of Jerry's loans due and that Jerry would have to pay, quote, because I know where the bones are buried, meaning Jerry's son's continued drug dealing. And I'm going to let him know I know unless I get my money back. On September 6th, Seymour's housekeeper overheard him shouting on the phone, quote, I don't give a shit. I'm coming tomorrow morning to get my money, so you better have it. Hmm, Man. But I still think it was probably Marty killed his parents. I mean, yeah, clearly. Right. The guys resolved it over a handshake and a nice (laughs) round of golf. When crime scene investigators learned that Marty had confessed to his parents' crime, they paid special attention to his bedroom and bathroom, even removing the entire drain assembly to test for blood or tissue, and they cut away the section of wall surrounding his light switch. So they basically were like, all right, we'll take what he confessed to, quote-unquote confessed to, and just fucking just laser focus right. in on that only. Right. The investigators also noted that there was no blood in any of the rooms in the house except for the rooms the victims were found in, And the rooms couldn't have been further apart in the house. So if he had ran back and forth multiple times, he was basically running from opposite ends of the house and there would have been blood everywhere.
2: Right.
0: When investigators released the home to the family, the first thing they noticed was a copy of the letter Seymour had sent to Jerry demanding the $50,000 note in plain sight on top of Seymour's desk. The letter was spotted with blood. No. Relatives also said that the detectives never interviewed them due to their disinterest in any information counter to the claim that Marty had done it. That's so crazy. They seemed to only interview friends, feeding them information as they spoke and cherry picking their accounts to gather details they could use against Marty and their claim that he chose that night to kill his parents so that he could blame Jerry.
1: Mm-mm. It's so crazy. It's like the all the clips of Dateline when they're feeding their, that's, the people they're interviewing. Yes, that's ex- exactly right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. They're like, so Marty didn't really get along with his dad, right? And they're like, right, no, no, they got Marty along great. Along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And, in his, and in Marty's confession, quote unquote confession, they were like, So then you went and you got the knife, right? You got it off the thing. You know, like they just were saying at him, like, this is what you did. Exactly what happened. Yep. McCready was also overheard bragging about the case to anyone who would listen in bars and other public places. Quote, I've got that little shit. One father of Marty's friends started a defense fund to help him and was quickly visited by a uniformed cop who said, quote, you got two teenage sons in this county. I wouldn't get involved if I were you. Uh, The man then dropped the fund.
1: I don't blame him.
0: Nope. (laughs) By the time police questioned Jerry, Marty had already confessed to the crime. So Jerry's interview was more of a standard interview with no mention at all of his debts to Seymour or their tensions that summer. After 20 whole minutes with Jerry, the officer wrote quote, having knowledge of Marty Tancliffe's accusation of Jerry Steuermann that he made at the scene, It is this officer's opinion and also the opinion of detective Legaza after interviewing Mr. Stewartman that he should not be considered a suspect in this homicide. Fucking again, real hard hitting detective Uh, work there guys.
1: Yeah. Good job.
0: Yep. Other friends and associates, however, did recount their sour business dealings and Seymour's fear of Jerry, all of which fell on deaf ears. On Thursday, September 8th, Jerry withdrew $15,000 from a joint bank account that he had shared with Stewart. A few days later, he called a mutual friend and asked, quote, is he dead yet? Oh, God. He pressed further and asked if he'd heard any details on his condition. On Wednesday, September 14th, seven days after the attack on the Tincliffe family, Jerry Steuerman's car was found abandoned next to a restaurant. The car was still running, the driver's side door was open, and Jerry was nowhere to be found. In what looked like a staged scene, there was a gold bracelet on the driver's seat and a single shoe on the floor. It's reported that the Homicide Squad worked quickly to confirm Jerry's whereabouts before the media caught wind, which would create a snag in their accusal of Marty. Jerry's lawyer explained that Jerry had come by his office earlier that day claiming he'd gotten two phone calls threatening his life and that he wanted to put his affairs in order. He'd given his lawyer... I know. Go ahead. <laughs> He'd given his lawyer a letter that he was only to open if something happened to him. Ugh. The letter was addressed to his eldest son, Glenn, and outlined his business affairs and specifically instructed him not to pay Mike Fox the money that the tank had been trying to collect. He closed the letter by saying, quote, now going to see your mother which was a strange hint at suicide and was extra odd considering his claims that someone else was threatening his life. Yeah. <laughs> he can't even get his own <laughs> story straight here. Like, These guy. people are after me. I'm going to go kill myself and be with your mother. Yeah. Glenn said he'd also gotten a phone call from someone saying, quote, got enough of your shit. You'll be sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> oh my God. I know. I think like Jerry's not even a good fake, like, mob, mob guy. Right. You know? Mm -mm. like any real mob guy would actually say he's sleeping with the fishes
1: a quick side note real quick yes i once went after i moved away from portland i went back to visit the friend that i was staying with had a five-year-old and he was so excited he said he came over to me and said sadie tonight you're gonna sleep with the fishes So I was happy to find out that I went up to his bedroom and he had a fish tank with fish inside. I was going to stay in his room.
0: Adorable. (laughs) I would have been way better if he'd actually tried to kill you. (laughs) Uh, Then I woke up with a little shit standing over me, holding a knife (laughs) (laughs) or dragging you down to like a quarry with a Uh cinder block tied around your leg. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um police learned that Jerry had checked into a Ramada Inn on Wednesday and the front desk recognized him because he checked in frequently, always with a young brunette woman in tow. When he checked out on Thursday, he'd shaved off his beard, cut his hair and was in a more understated clothes with dark glasses. But it was Marty, but it was Marty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This guy's clearly, yeah. Just give a guy a break. He, He was like, really wanted to reinvent himself. Right. Needed a haircut. Yeah. Marty's attorney was thrilled when they learned of Jerry's disappearance, but his feelings were deflated when he spoke to the prosecutor who claimed that the disappearance had nothing to do with the tank and that they were still pursuing Marty's confession. Mm. Quote, it was bizarre to me, Gottlieb recalled. He's actually telling me, oh, come on, you don't really believe this has anything to do with the case. I was disgusted. It was clear to me that they were just locked in. They already told the world that they had gotten a confession from this young kid and held press conferences announcing that they'd solved this case in a matter of hours with the crack homicide detectives. So now I know there's no interest in getting to the truth. I can very well be representing somebody who did not commit these crimes. And I know that the Suffolk DA and homicide squad will do everything possible to destroy Marty and an attorney who tries vigorously to represent him. Mm-hmm. I knew at that moment that we were involved in a war. Oh, Can you imagine? You're like, bingo, sweet. This is clearly this guy did it. And then they're like, what are you talking about? Marty confessed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I don't
1: want to talk about politics too much but that's sort of how i feel every day of my life oh yeah good point okay yeah no this this is the like this is bad enough right guys right we all we
0: all agree that this is crazy behavior people are no but no just we didn't say it whatever no we never said that like i actually i'm like literally hearing i could put it i like
1: to drink bleach it's
0: delicious (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing wrong with a little bleach drinking my parents did it (sighs) yeah oh god anyway anyway (laughs) Police successfully spun Jerry's disappearance as unrelated to the Tankloff attacks, and two judges denied Marty's appeals for bail. Finally, a third judge approved bail at a million Mm dollars. On Monday, September 23rd, Jerry's girlfriend came home to a message on his answering machine that was just the word pistachio spoken in a male voice, and she figured out it was Jerry because it was their mutual favorite ice cream. (laughs) She (laughs) called... Yeah. She called police who tapped her phone, and when a call came in later in the day with nobody on the other line, they were able to trace it to a hotel in San Francisco. They faxed a photo of Jerry to the hotel, and an employee confirmed that he had checked in the day before under the name Jay Winston. They tracked down Jerry in the hotel in San Francisco, who claimed he'd staged his own abduction so his family would get $2 million in insurance. He re- he realized later that his family could only collect if he was found dead, and even then it would take seven years for the policy to pay out, which wouldn't help his family at all. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh. Police asked him where he'd been for two weeks, and he said he'd met a woman on a plane and explained how he'd been having a hard time, <laughs> and she encouraged him to visit the New Age Healing Center uh, Esalen in Big Sur. <laughs> So he'd gone for a weekend retreat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seems legit. Everybody needs a break. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, Esalen is like really hardcore. It still exists. I looked it up. It's really hardcore, like self-help, intentional community. It's not just like a place for a guy like Jerry Sturman, but he's like, yeah, sounds good. Fuck it. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, He'd then driven to San Francisco and across the Bay to Oakland to have his hair weed serviced. <laughs> He'd then driven to L.A. where the police had intercepted him. They explained that they needed to question him, but not because he was a suspect, but because he knew that they would be the center of Gottlieb's defense strategy and they wanted to get their facts straight. Oh, God. After questioning Jerry, McCready, quote, offered some friendly advice. He wrote in his case report, quote, We explained to him that he did not have to return to New York with us if he did not wish to. In view of what Steuermann had told us, I explained to him that he might be better off returning with us, taking care of his personal problems, and then returning to California at a later date if he wished to do so. Steuermann then decided to return to New York with us. The three of them, Rain, McCready, and Steuermann, actually stayed in L.A. for two more days, and nobody knows what went on during that time. Just had a little boy's it's weekend. a like little boy's retreat. Yeah, man. Yeah. Wow. Police were careful to let the media know that they'd found Jerry, but that his disappearance was just the result of a stressed out man overburdened by his responsibilities who needed a break. Jerry was clear with the police, his family, and the media that he had attempted to stage his own death for a fraudulent insurance payout, mm-hmm. but no formal charges were lodged against him. Unbelievable. Yeah. This guy.
1: Yeah. He, like, won the police lottery. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is he going to get away with multiple crimes, he made some good friends along the way. Yeah. Yeah, they're Unbelievable.
0: like... Ah, oh, it'll be all right. You can tell the entire world that you staged your own death to defraud your insurance company. But let's just hang out in L.A. Just, like, yeah. meet some chicks. Have you been to the Hollywood sign? <laughs> Excellent. I just... I'm appalled. (laughs) Let's go to Griffith Observatory while we're here. Uh, Yep. On September 14th, McCready brought Gottlieb his and Ryan's written account of Marty's interview. According to them, Marty said he'd gone to bed planning to attack his parents. They claim that Marty attacked his parents with a knife and a barbell. Quote, according to the detectives, Marty told them how he went about trying to cover his tracks He washed the knife and barbell in the shower and then went back to his bedroom, laid down, and thought about what to do next. At 6.10, he decided to call 911. He then went down to the office and found that his father was still alive, but he figured he would die before the ambulance arrived. He went back into his mother's bedroom and saw that she was dead. He made the call from there. He then got a towel and a pillow to make it look as if he'd followed the 911 operator's instructions. He made sure that he got his father's blood on his hands to show he would tried to help his father. He missed the blood on his shoulder when he'd showered. He screwed up. Oh, I forgot to mention earlier when they were interviewing him, he like his hoodie had slipped and they noticed a spot of blood on his shoulders. And the police were like, Oh, gotcha. Like, <laughs> I know they go back and back and back to this fucking spot of blood on his shoulder. When Gottlieb showed Marty, the confession, he hysterically denied giving any of the details Marty also had never initialed his Miranda rights or signed the confession as Mike Fox's call to cease questioning had actually interrupted him doing so. It was the only small miracle in a series of unfortunate events to occur that day. On October 6th, Seymour Tankla finally succumbed to his injuries and died. Marty's family delayed the funeral for six days and scrambled to post Marty's bail so he could attend the funeral without the presence of armed guards. Mm -hmm. I won't go into all the details, but the police and the press amplified their villainizing of Marty and his school announced that he wouldn't be welcomed back because of, quote, the knife incident, which was a moment the year before when Marty had been goofing around with a friend and jokingly said he would kill him and pulled out an ornate switchblade. A teacher had witnessed the knife and now the school was claiming he was kicked out because of it.
2: Hmm.
0: Gottlieb eventually got the results of the forensic report after putting pressure on them to have it released because they just sat on it, and they didn't give it to him. And none of the hairs from the scene were a match for Marty. There was further testing done on the knife and the barbell, police claimed were the murder weapons, and zero blood evidence was found. The uh, expert actually said that he would have actually had to, like, take apart the knife, clean it so thoroughly with, like, a very heavy-duty wow. detergent, and then put the knife back together for them to find nothing on it. Wow. They examined the drains from all over the house. Again, no evidence of blood or tissue is found in the accumulations of hair and soap buildup. They also could not explain how if Marty made four trips between the two rooms to savagely beat and nearly decapitate his parents, why hadn't they found a single drop of blood in any of the other rooms? Mm -hmm. They also found some of Seymour's blood in Arlene's room, which contradicted the police account that Marty claimed he'd killed his mother Mm 1st then came the matter of the will. Sherry had never been informed that she was all but cut out of her father's will due to pressure from Arlene, and she was understandably furious when she found out. She was also unaware that her parents' friends would be Marty's guardians until he was 18, and she immediately hired a lawyer and began to put pressure on Marty, who was mostly living with her at the time, to split the will with her. So she...
1: I guess I'm a little confused.
0: Okay, so... The- Basically, Marty had given guardianship to his friends and not Sherry, who was an adult, you know, like a full grown okay. adult, um, right. because Arlene didn't want her to raise Marty. Because right. Arlene, Arlene didn't like her, and he right. had also like cut her out of the will, with the exception of like a meager interest from the Hofstra. Right, right. I remember that yeah, part. yeah. So okay. she wasn't happy about any of it. They hadn't told her right. any of that, you know, like you're right. not the beneficiary of anything, and you're also we don't trust you to raise our kid. So she was mm-hmm. pissed. Poor thing. I know. Mike Fox and the Tankliff's friends encouraged Marty to have Sherry speak with them about the will, and eventually her frustration grew to the point that she had Marty move in with her parents' friends full time, and she formally challenged the will. Hmm. The friends' fears grew as they became concerned that Sherry would turn on her brother as she figured out that his conviction would mean that she would inherit everything. Oh, no. I know. On March 6th, the trial began to determine whether or not the judge would allow the confession to be presented in court. Again, I won't go into all the details because there are many, Uh, but the two main factors that didn't bode well for Marty were that Mike Fox had actually falsified a claim that he told police first thing in the morning when he'd stopped by the Tencliffe house that they weren't to question Marty. So they think that Mike realized how badly they had all fucked up by letting Marty into police custody and not like following up. And he, you know, the the were his best friends. He loved them dearly. And so out of just like guilt and desperation, he claimed later that he had told the police at that point that they weren't allowed to question him, which was not mm. true. Okay. The other thing was that the judge was nominated for district attorney. Uh, his name was Tish. And Marty's defense asked him to recuse himself from the case, citing a conflict of interest. He refused, and they filed a formal complaint, which resulted in the nomination actually being retracted. So oh. the people, you know, whoever nominates people for a district attorney were like, yeah, that's too messy. We're retracting our nomination. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they started out the process of the court case by royally pissing off the judge. <laughs> On May 8th, the judge ruled that the confession would be admissible. Oh, well. <laughs> They wrote Of course he did because this kid can't catch a single fucking break. Seriously. <laughs> it continues. On April twenty third, Judge Tish swore in the jury and welcomed a criminal justice class from a nearby high school who would be watching the trial. <laughs> no. There was also a news camera in the room for the first time since nineteen fifty two. Wow. The ban on news cameras in court had recently been lifted and Marty's trial would be the first to be broadcast complete with a graphic that would announce the return to the case. So they would like go to um, a, like a daily news or commercial break. And then when they mm-hmm. came back to the case, like they would break for lunch basically. And then when it was time to come back to the case, this graphic would pop up with Marty's face on it. Oh no. And an announcer announcing quote, this is a news 12 special report, the murder trial of Martin Tancliffe. Wow. I know. One by one, witnesses took the stand to recount their stories, many obviously influenced by the media coverage of the case. One notable account was from Marty's classmate, who had driven by that morning and stopped to speak to Marty briefly. Quote, I said, Hey, Marty, how's it going? And he said, Last night, someone killed my mother, tried to kill my father, and molested me. Marty had never said anything about being molested. And the girl was interviewed about the statement before the trial where she admitted that maybe she'd misheard it, but on the stand she was pretty adamant that there wasn't anything else that Marty could have said that morning, despite his hysteria and tendency to babble. The media ran with the story, and of course the prosecution leaned into it as an example of the, quote, inconsistencies in Marty's statements about what had happened on the morning of the attack. Marty later realized that he'd likely said, quote, They killed my mother and tried to kill my father and must have missed me. Mm-hmm. Another witness for the prosecution painted a very suspicious account of Marty's behavior that morning. And fast forward two years after his testimony in the trial, he was, quote, accused by a federal grand jury of carrying out the largest corporate fraud in American history. God. <laughs> yeah. He was one of their neighbors and he just like wow. said that Marty was doing all this weird and sketchy stuff, which he had not done. And wow. then fast forward two years and he's <laughs> just <That's laughs> a major fraud. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yep. <laughs> Poor Marty. Three girls from Marty's class testified that they were looking at a Ferrari together in a magazine and quote, he said that if he could get a hit on his parents, he could have that car, mm. which he had never said. He said something like, "If I didn't, if my parents weren't around. I could have a car like that." And also, he's a fucking teenager, you know. I was going to say, even they, if he did say that, exactly. you can't take it literally. Exactly, it doesn't literally mean that. Yeah, and Richard Firstman is very clear to point out in his book over and over again that the biggest problem with this case was that Marty was a teenager and that he was himself, like he was. A really good kid, but also really easy to dislike. And so he had that going against him from the start. You know, like a, Long Island, a very wealthy Long Island Jew. Like people right. were just not going to cut him a fucking break.
1: Right.
0: Men from Seymour's poker game gave accounts that didn't shine favorably on Marty and minimized Seymour's and Jerry's feud. So and they like he's also very clear to say that the the media clearly influenced this case and the people you know who had originally been on Jerry's or on uh, Marty's side after like immediately after the crime or like he would never do something like that and then the media keeps reporting that he confessed and that you know he'd done all these horrible things and that he was changing his story and all these things and so people are like well shit he obviously did it. You know why would he confess if he hadn't done it? And so their stories and their um, impressions and accountings of him all started to skew against mm. him. Meanwhile, Jerry just couldn't seem to stay out of trouble. He engaged in a feud with a vendor that resulted in him forging a letter to a judge and posing as the vendor, asking the judge <laughs> to drop the charges. Oh my god! <laughs> Which resulted in a two thousand dollar fine and Jerry losing the case, obviously. Mm. <laughs> His drug dealing son, Todd, also shot someone named Joe that he wanted to work for him as one of his quote unquote enforcers or bill collectors. Mm-hmm. The man refused to collect drug money and also claimed that, quote, Todd also told me that I should talk to his father about cutting Marty Tancliffe's tongue out of his mouth. Oh, yeah. He oh also God. told me and this was not this was not presented in court. This is off on the side.
1: Well, I mean, why would it need to be presented in court? It wouldn't
0: matter. You could say these <laughs> things in court, and they'd be like, "Ah, Marty still did it." It's fine. Yep. He also told me that he wanted somebody whacked for ten grand, but wouldn't tell me who. Ugh. Todd shot Joe in the arm after an altercation, and Todd was charged with third-degree assault and cocaine possession, and was finally sent to prison. It was reported that Jerry had threatened the enforcer after the fact, but the enforcer meaning Joe, and mm-hmm. said, "Quote." I can have you dead. Wow. So Gottlieb learned about these things. He learned that all of this had gone down, and that Joe claimed that Todd said that Marty, he wanted his father wanted Marty Tancliffe's tongue cut out and that he was going to put a hit out on somebody. So he asked the judge if he could bring this up in court. You know, obviously this is right. really important information, it's very relevant. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the problem was that it was about Todd's case, which was completely separate from Marty's mm. case. So the judge agreed that Gottlieb could ask Jerry if he'd ever threatened Joe, but if denied it, which of course he would, he could not put Joe on the stand to say that Jerry had threatened him. So he could only question Jerry. He could not bring Joe in. Bummer. Yeah. Jerry took the stand and the defense walked him through accounts that painted him as a sympathetic character who'd fallen on hard times and made a few poor choices as a result. Mm -hmm. Gottlieb, on the other hand, cross-examined him for three days, picking apart the impossibility of his debts and his tumultuous relationships with the Tancliffs. Near the end of cross-examination, Jerry erupted into a rant about how the trial wasn't fair for him, about how he was not the one on trial but had to sit there for three days and be questioned, and about how his only mistake was that he'd been a, quote, poor man living like a millionaire and that his life was not fair. He told a friend a few years later that the outburst had been staged with the assistant district attorney, in an attempt to gain sympathy by painting himself as a, quote, humiliated and wrongfully accused man. Oh, my God. Yeah. They're like, well, it could have made him look really narcissistic or it could have made the jury feel sorry for him. And, of course, it made the jury feel sorry for him. When Gottlieb questioned Jerry about threatening Joe, Jerry, of course, claimed he didn't know the man and had never threatened him, and that ended Gottlieb's line of questioning on the matter. Gottlieb also tried to question Jerry about another business associate who claimed Jerry had sent five Hells Angels to vandalize his store after the relationship had soured. And Jerry, of course, denied all the accusations and claimed that everything had been the other man's fault. Mm -hmm. The cross-examination certainly pointed out Jerry's shifty business dealings and erratic behavior, but would it be enough to plant the seed that he was responsible for the Tankliff's murders? One motive that the police had presented for Marty killing his parents was that he was upset that their friend would be staying with him while they went on a cruise. But when questioned, the friend painted the complete opposite picture and said that Marty seemed really pleased about the situation.
1: Well, yeah. I know. I mean,
0: it's like party time.
1: Yeah. I'd much rather party with your friends than
0: Well, it was go the, the parents' friends, but still. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's like what teenage yeah. boy isn't excited when his parents go out of town? Yeah. When experts presented their lack of forensic evidence based on the police account, the prosecution presented other experts that could show how their claims could still line up quote, as they reported their findings, the forensic experts revealed the case to be a kind of hall of mirrors. The prosecution focused on details like three tissues found in Marty's pocket. One of which had a spot of his mother's blood on it. They claimed it got there when he killed his mother as he said he'd never interacted with her body to try to help her. They also examined a loofah from his shower, which they'd claimed was wet on the morning of the murder, backing up their assertion that he'd showered after murdering them. It also had a slit in the side that police claimed happened when he'd cleaned off the knife. Marty said the loofah had come with the slit when he'd purchased it. (laughs) The prosecution was also able to present a blood spatter expert who contradicted Marty's claims. He testified that, based on the blood patterns, there was no way Marty pulled his father from his office chair and that he had not made the 911 call from the office phone like he'd claimed. What he didn't take into account was whether the blood on the phone was already dry when Marty made the call. Mm. Again, I won't go into every detail of the evidence because it is literally endless, but I will say that despite some bright spots for the defense, like an expert testifying that there was no way the attacker would have gotten away without any signs of struggle, The prosecution found ways to wedge their story into the expert testimony again and again. Mm -hmm. The detectives then took the stand to recount the goings-on of the day and their interview with Marty that eventually led to the confession. Rain went first and was, quote, a prosecutor's dream. He came across as seasoned, straightforward, by the book. One point the detectives hammered on throughout the investigation was that during the interview they'd noticed some blood on Marty's shoulder when his hoodie slipped open and Marty didn't seem aware of the spot. They'd asked him why he didn't have any blood on his clothes from helping his parents, and he said it was because he'd rolled up his sleeves. When they confronted him about the spot on his shoulder, he claimed his hoodie had slipped off of his shoulders, and the detective said that that claim was ridiculous because the hoodie would have made it nearly impossible for him to help his father. Marty then said maybe he put the hoodie on after he helped his father, and later said he'd put it on after the police had arrived. McCready took the stand and some parts of his testimony lined up perfectly, but other parts were a little jumbled. And Marty said, quote, he understood that there was a chasm between the truth and their version of it, but so much was still a blur in his mind and he couldn't tell Gottlieb where the lies were. Mm-hmm. So basically like listening to them, he's like, I have no idea what happened at this point. You know, like right. they've said so many different things. Marty was unable to tell what was the truth and what was a lie at that point. And honestly, reading the book, I, I can't tell either. (laughs) Right. All I know is that Marty didn't kill his parents. That's the only thing I know for sure. And like what actually happened is so convoluted based on evidence presented and and evidence like contradicted. It's like very, Well,
1: it's that where when detectives and forensics and everybody, they all think they know the end game. So they're going to shove the evidence. Yeah towards making him look guilty there is no truth to be found that's exactly it's, right when I mean, you can't go back and redo the crime scene or like re-interview witnesses or take away the media like right. there's no redoing any of that exactly
0: yeah that's exactly right and it's also yeah. i didn't go into great detail about like you know the evidence that was presented and like the contradictions of that evidence because it's like it's a moot point you know it's right. it's just right. it just was all set up to confuse and it's was very successful in doing that. Both detectives walked through the details leading up to the confession, including the call that McCready faked about Seymour pinning the crime on his son, but both added a litany of details outlining Marty's motive for the crime as well as details about the crime itself that Marty had never actually confessed to. Again, I won't go into all the details, but Gottlieb questioned them both on the myriad details of the crime that they didn't follow up on. And how they never looked at Jerry as a suspect. Gottlieb tried to convince the judge to allow him to present the State Investigation Commission's report on Suffolk County's Homicide Division and the prosecutor's history in investigating and prosecuting homicide cases, and the judge denied it, only allowing questioning on one previous case that McCready had falsely testified about crucial evidence in a murder trial, and then further lied when questioned about it later. So uh, the SIC... Um, report was the one I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, where they were like, "Why do you have a confession rate of ninety four percent when other mm-hmm. counties, similar sized counties, have fifty four, like fifty five to seventy four percent confession rates?" And the judge is like, "Not relevant." <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> the prosecution pointed out through their examination that no detective had been promoted faster than McCready that he'd worked more than 200 cases and received 17 commendations in 20 years. Mm. Marty then took the stand and the defense walked him through the events leading up to and preceding the crime, hoping to show the jurors that he was the victim in the situation. He explained how the detectives had asked him specific questions about the crime, like leading questions about the crime, like him using the knife in the kitchen to stab his parents. And after denying their assertions and accusations for some time, he finally started to say yes, quote, because that's what they wanted to hear. Mm. Detective McCready stated to me, Well, Marty, what did you hit your mother and father with? You know, was it the dumbbells in your room? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, just say yes, make it easy. And so I said yes. At the end of his testimony, Gottlieb said, quote, Marty, did you kill your mother? Quote, I love my parents, Marty said. I had absolutely nothing to do with this. He said this with as much force and emotion as he could manage, but he didn't raise his voice, and he didn't cry.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The prosecution's examination highlighted all the points police claimed to be his motivation for the murders, and one particularly damning line of questioning was about an interaction at his sister Sherry's house. Quote, Do you recall your father being angry with you when you got to Sherry's house and an argument ensuing in Sherry's living room? No, I don't, Marty said, growing perplexed. Let me see if I can refresh your recollection some. Do you recall leaving the service station and your father telling you, if you think you're going to University of Miami playboy school and living in your father's condominium, you've got another thing coming? Do you recall that? No, I don't, said Marty. Uh, And this next part is verbatim from the book. For Marty, this was a devastating moment, the moment he realized his sister's betrayal was complete. Sherry was giving ammunition to the prosecution and lies at that. More worrisome was the signal it gave to the jury that the defendant had lost the support of his own sister, the daughter of one of the victims. If she was on the prosecution's side, she must think he's guilty. The prosecution combed Marty's testimony for inconsistencies, focusing on details like Marty claiming he'd pulled his father from the chair, but there being an absence of blood on his midsection. Mm. The defense then called an expert in coerced confessions who specifically studied a reaction to feeling powerless called quote traumatic neurosis. And again, bear in mind that this is before anybody talked about coerced confessions, So this guy was doing very early research on the subject. When this occurred, the person being questioned would become so stressed. They'd lose all sense of reality. He'd extensively studied the experiences of soldiers in World War II and based his analysis on these studies. He talked specifically about a soldier who'd watched his friend be blown to bits by a bomb and then picked up a couple of his limbs that were left, calmly walked them back to camp, and laid them on a table saying, quote, Here's Ken. In the end, his testimony was deemed, quote, Too out there to sway the jury. The defense presented several witnesses who backed up their claims that the Tankliffs had a wonderful relationship as a family and a deeply volatile relationship with Jerry Stewartman. Both sides presented their final summations on June 20th. The prosecution was repeatedly allowed to, quote, suggest to the jury that the defense had somehow failed to prove its case. And because of that, Gottlieb called for a mistrial, which was, of course, denied. Of course. Yeah. Immediately after the jury was dismissed, McCready held a press conference where he outlined that Sherry and her husband had long been on their side in the case, and of course there was a chance that that news conference couldn't somehow make its way back to the jury. I know, it's so shady, it's so shady. (laughs) After eight days of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Marty sobbed for several minutes before he entered the courtroom the seriousness of his situation finally hitting him.
2: Oh, buddy.
0: And if you want to know what happened to Marty Tancliffe <laughs> after that, you're <laughs> going to have to come back in four days. Dear bitch. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting started, guys. I know it seems mm. like this would be the end, but this is just the beginning and it's fucking so interesting. So please, yeah, please, man. please come back and listen to the rest.
1: Well, I'll be there through. sure. sure. <laughs> what a crazy case, man. I'm
0: like exhausted. I know. Imagine. <laughs> like
1: in a good way, but. I know. Oh boy. I know.
0: I like simultaneously love and hate wrongfully accused cases. Yeah. I love this yeah. one because it gets really good. I hate ones like "Make a murderer where they're just like sitting in fucking prison, mm. you know, despite like so much evidence in their right. favor. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. And it's my biggest fear. I've said that before. My biggest fear is being wrongfully imprisoned. It's legitimately my biggest fear. Also being shot into space, but (laughs) somehow I think I'll be shot
1: into space. Yes.
0: Like being floating out in space with Uh... out there. Uh... (laughs) Yuck. (laughs) I I I hate wide open spaces. Also like being (laughs) stranded in the ocean, but I could probably deal with that a little bit easier than space.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, false confessions and not launching you into space, my one of my all-time favorite podcast seasons is in the dark season two, mm-hmm. which is uh, amazing. Mm. It's like if you want to talk about just crazy misconduct and
0: I don't know yeah, if I do. Ah, I know really you've recommended good. it so many it's times, so and I'm
1: like, good. This guy was tried six times. Oh God, that's right. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable really really good so you don't have to listen to it but i will who are listening i will check it out it's it's just some of the best podcast like journalism yeah that i've ever listened to it's amazing yeah i just have to like those girls worked their asses off and were part of the reason that he was
0: able to to get out that's amazing Mm -hmm. so it's just like us i you know how many hours i sorted through (laughs) richard firstman's novel this week <laughs> you guys i read it <laughs>
1: and i told you about it we are really cutting edge here you guys
0: saving the people uh, oh man good job i can't thanks. wait for part thanks thanks i know i know i know i know i'm really close to the end but i got to a point where i was like yeah holy shit i still have a long way to go and i don't want to rush it because i'm already yeah. like i said i'm already left out so many details just for the sake of storytelling um but we're getting to the point where it's like night, the court, U S Supreme court. And I'm like, okay, I can't like mm-hmm. just be like, and then appeals. And then the end, yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? right. I gotta, I gotta invest some time into making sure that I tell the story as correctly yep. as possible. So You're doing ap- good job. apologies to uh, Marty Tancliffe and Mr. Firstman, if I fucked it up too badly, but I really love this story and I really love that novel and I really love you guys. So thanks for yep. listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, Uh, Any quick businesses? Yeah, man, I got some serious businesses. And first of all, I want to criticize my sister for stealing Nikki McKibben's thunder when it comes to (laughs) season one of American Idol, in which Nikki McKibben (laughs) placed third. And I
1: still don't believe it. It turns
0: out Jennifer Hudson placed seventh on season three, which is totally unbelievable. And I completely understand why you would think... She'd placed third because she should have placed third. Like seventh? Uh,
1: yeah, I think that I probably was brought into some interrogation room at some point in the last, like, <laughs> <I cannot. laughs> whatever, you suffered. years, 15 years. Yeah, you suffered like, traumatic Listen, neurosis. <laughs> Listen, Jennifer Hudson was in season one. She got third. I was like, okay. Just give me my coffee. Well, I swear I will. I just don't. I don't, I don't blame
0: it. you. I think two things happened. I think one, it it was shocking that Nikki McKibben beat Tamira Gray, mm-hmm. um, in season one, and two, it was shocking that Jennifer Hudson got seventh. I remember yes, that being so a crazy. huge upset. And then yeah. she's fucking fine, man. She's laughing all the way to the mm-hmm. bank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, who knows any of the names of anybody else other than Fantasia, who. I don't know what Fantasia's doing right now, but she's not doing yeah. what Jennifer Hudson's doing. So no, Jennifer Hudson's not sweating that loss too hard. Yeah. And
1: well, you got to think too, like, well, we don't have to get into the details of <laughs> American Idol <laughs> <Nope>. contracts, but <laughs> I'm guessing that like seventh place probably doesn't have to sign
0: as much away. Good point. Their, like mm-hmm. rights than mm-hmm. first. So I know where's be better off to lose. Totally. Where's um, Clay Aiken, my sweet, sweet Clay Aiken. Mm-hmm. Where's, What's his? What's the runner-up kid? Ruben Stuttered. Where's he? I thought Ruben won. Where's both of them? <laughs> I don't
1: know. I mean, who knows at this point? Don't take my American Idol memories as fact, you guys. A moment
2: <laughs> like this <laughs> in a lifetime.
0: Uh, um. Oh, I looked up the Ukrainian orphan. Who? Oh, good. Thank you. Yes, and there aren't You're really on it. updates. While well, I was like. It's such a fascinating case, but the orphan is living with her parents again as far as I could tell. So Really? Yeah, I forgot that they moved to Canada because their son is a physics uh, like prodigy. He's an actual what? certified genius. Yes, yeah, so they they lived oh, in that's right. Yeah, they lived in Lafayette, yeah. Indiana and they like set her up with an apartment. You're like you're 22 or whatever. They set her up with an apartment, moved to Canada so that he could be a physics genius and then <laughs> the cops or whatever were like oh we're pretty sure you just abandoned a child and <laughs> so they came back to the United States and took her back and um and then that's kind of the last I heard that's the last okay. information so whether or not they so v- crazy I know I know um also big news Sadie got adult adopted by HelloFresh this week so that's a-
1: oh yeah I finally <laughs> decided I was like what did I yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm having some quarantine blues over here just cooking and cooking, eating and cooking. planning. And My husband's an amazing cook. He does a lot. He's an amazing cook. But a lot of times deciding like what we're going to eat is up to me. So I did. I signed up for HelloFresh. I'm going to do it for a week. Maybe it'll uh, be life-changing. Welcome to the family. I'm excited about it. Thanks.
0: You're welcome. Thanks. Yep,
1: it'll increase our chances of them sponsoring us if they see that we
0: both have been customers, right? That's right. Are we suing them? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Are we suing them or MTV? I don't remember. HelloFresh. Oh, yeah, for stealing my uh, adult adoption campaign to get adult (laughs) adopted by (laughs) HelloFresh. Yep. (laughs) Should we sue? I feel like
1: we were suing somebody else, too, but I I can't keep up with all the lawsuits we have out there. Uh. Our just giveaway just, was a success.
0: Yay! Congratulations! Yeah, we did... So um, excited. We got two... <laughs> our first and third place winners live in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so <laughs> Which is wonderful. It is wonderful. <laughs> it's like the upside is that we have listenership in foreign countries. And then, yeah. like, the slight downside is that I was like, oh, shit, postage. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, i'm fine with it i'll so spend great. a little extra money to yeah, absolutely send goodies to our um australian to new zealand followers listeners. yeah no that's doubt great. about it no doubt about it the congratulations you guys yeah i mean really the fact that we have enough
1: listenership that we're sending things to other countries is so amazing Fuck,
0: yeah yes absolutely yeah absolutely. that it's not just our mother listening is i know my wife who can't actually mm-hmm. listen to all the episodes? She'll come up. She'll be like, "It's too scary." I'm like, you know, I yeah, Ryan. Listen.
1: Ryan tried his best. He really did. He like hung in there for. <laughs> I think it was Jeff Lundgren that did him. And after that, when he was like, I'm done. I cannot. I like, I love you. I, I support
0: you. I cannot. I, I don't want to know. I know. My Zoe is yeah. one of my best friends yesterday. was like, I, okay, I'm going to listen to one. What should I listen to? And I was like, uh, the murder suicide once that say." she's like, that sounds terrible. It sounds terrifying. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. She hasn't hope... followed up with the text about whether or not she listened to it. So I don't we'll think she made it out. either.
1: Yeah, I I get it. I have I have a few dear friends who are like I just can't do. No, it. I, I totally get it. No, yeah, we don't expect you to convert. No, it's not something you just like loving murder no, because no, we're jerks who want to talk about it. Yeah, it's
0: not something you can just like talk like get get a taste for. You are born, no. <laughs> you're born born twisted fuckers. Or you're, right. you're not. You're not made. Yeah, we're not a
1: fine. Chardonnay. <laughs>
0: those are um in my opinion um that's an oxymoron i fucking hate chardonnay I did, too. <laughs> I did too i'm just back in the 80s still in my cocktail party yeah with a chardonnay problem mm-hmm. you and arlene Tancliff, like yeah man cracking open Seriously. the the
1: white at yeah. 11 a.m yep when i wake up in the middle of the night with my anxiety i'm just gonna oh uh, yeah I hope Arlene doesn't mind. We'll just party together a little bit. That
0: so does sound really good. Yeah. Got some Sauvignon Blanc in the fridge. Might have to hit it up after this. Um, yeah. And one more thing, if you made it this far and listening, I'll give you a little sneak sneak <laughs> peek into the future of giveaways. I was thinking about it this weekend. It's like time to take down my summer clothes and put away my winter clothes, which is fucking awesome. But every year I have four bags of giveaway items. And one of my favorite things on Instagram right now is flash sales that my friends do with their vintage stuff. And I have tons of vintage stuff and a little bit of designer stuff too. So I was like, I think I'll pick some of my best pieces and offer it to our listeners in exchange for reviews, which sounds really fun. People might be like, I don't want your old ass clothes, but I promise there's some really cute stuff in there. I'm one of those people that sort of compulsively vintage shops. And also buys designer stuff on eBay, and then it gets here, and I'm like, oh, I look like a weird secretary in this. And I was <laughs> like, I'm thinking I'm gonna look like a chic, like New mm-hmm. York, um, you know, like girl.
1: Like you're going to a cocktail party, and yes,
0: I'm gonna look. <laughs> Actually, I do have one dress that I'm gonna put on there that I exactly, and I was like, oh, what a what a chic like vintage shift dress from mm-hmm. uh, from Terre, Long Island in the '80s, and then I put it on, and I look fucking insane. And, like wore it to Chicago and went. Gay dancing with a bunch of fucking gorgeous twenty-year-olds, and they were just like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Who brought mom to the party? Yeah, nice try. You look old. And hey, guys,
1: I'm going to include my collection of soft pants. <laughs> you can't. You already told us that you had to
0: buy extras on Target.com because you didn't have enough. So Target.com. That's right. Don't. Good. Um, <laughs> no, we're not sponsored by them yet, but yeah, I would no, love to be. uh so don't sacrifice your only soft pants all right not yet not till after quarantine we'll do another giveaway then so anyway all right look for that i'm gonna do i don't know when i'm gonna it's basically want. as soon as i like want to go into the attic to get the shit down is when that's gonna start to happen but (laughs) it's gonna have to happen sooner than later because i it's getting warm very quickly and i don't have anything appropriate to wear nope
1: all right, let's wrap this up. I know, I'm so hungry. Oh,
0: my computer's about to die. So yeah, mine too. you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, They Will Kill. You can check out our website, theywillkill.com. You can email us at theywillkillpodcast at gmail.com.
1: Uh, rate, review, subscribe. Yes, please. Thank you, AJ, for our music. Thank you
0: so much.
1: Um, and remember, um, don't drink Chardonnay. It really tastes great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you yes. know what's even worse, though? is what? pink Moscato oh god yeah i we, yeah, yeah no m- m- yeah yeah <laughs> no uh you know what it's even worse than that what falsely getting imprisoned no that's better
0: than <laughs> pico moscato i'd rather get falsely imprisoned than during pico moscato I had, to, I had to choose
1: all right you guys we love all
0: you right, so we much. love you. We love thanks you. for listening
1: goodbye goodbye <laughs>